If you have your Bible today, will you turn with me to Luke chapter 15? Or today's text is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. Jesus has just been eating at a dinner in the house of a Pharisee, a ruler of a synagogue, actually. One of the rulers of the Pharisees, and uh, this kind of is carrying on the same the same narrative. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I'd lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Bless us now, our fathers, we hear this. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. So if I can ever find ten minutes, I would like one day to write a book on how this thing that we call the gospel um, 
you know by now that the gospel, the good news, it's not just hell insurance. It is the good news that God reigns, the good news of God's kingdom. I'd like to write a book someday on how that gospel of the kingdom of God gets at the root of our social problems. Would you guys agree that there are some social problems in this world? I'd like to think about how the gospel gets at those. For example, the perennial and vexing problem of how we human beings sort ourselves, the social lines that we draw with each other. Every single society of people has people who are in and people who are out, people who are up and people who are down. We've all got these social lines. And if you pay attention, you will see that human beings very often sort themselves along material lines, along lines of basically stuff that's visible and tangible. And you will find that the people who have power and beauty and resources, they're farther up and farther in. And the people who are powerless and ugly and under-resourced will be farther out and lower down. That very often happens. But we don't just sort along material lines. You will also find that we sort we humans, along moral lines. And this is not just true in religiously influenced societies. Many, many societies, if not all societies, will tend to kind of rank people and kind of have concentric uh, circles of people based on who adheres to how things are, quote-unquote, supposed to be. If you follow the traditions of this group, you'll be in and up. If you don't, you'll be down and out. If you follow the rules, if you embrace the values. If you live by, for religiously influenced societies, if you live or do not live by the justice of heaven, we'll rank each other and sort each other along those lines. Now, as Christians, you and I understand that that justice of heaven that I've just mentioned is not make-believe. You and I are permitted to call an evil, evil, because God does. It is actually okay to say that a sinner against God's justice deserves his judgment. If a tax collector collects more than is owed and destroys someone's livelihood, that is judgment worthy. And we can say that because God does. It's even okay to say that certain kinds of people who sin in certain ways should be avoided. Don't get close with an angry man. He'll make you like him. There are certain people you don't want around your children. That's not insane. All of that, to a, in a way, really lines up with even things we hear from God himself. But if all that we had in this world were strict justice from heaven, then the kingdom of God would look like a pyramid of merit. It would be a very literal meritocracy with the people who merit closer to the top and the people who do not merit morally farther to the bottom Because the reality is that while every single one of us has sinned and deserves God's judgment, some people are really far worse than others. That is not make-believe. Some people are more afoul of God's heavenly justice than other people are. And so that's how the kingdom of God would look. It would look like a pyramid of merit, and, and we would rank each other and sort each other that way. But you and I both understand, and Jesus is really going after this in the Gospel of Luke, there is much more that we have from heaven than just strict justice. At the very heart of God's kingdom is this very, very disruptive thing that our Father in heaven is merciful. 
He delights in mercy. Mercy begins from this fact, and it is a fact whether we acknowledge it or not, that no sinner who has ever lived, including all of us sitting in this room, not one of us deserves to be at God's table. In fact, it's stronger than that. It is not merely that you and I do not deserve to be at God's table. We deserve not to be at God's table. We deserve to be cast out from his presence. And so that being the premise, the only thing that gives me a seat at this table of God is pure, free, joyful grace from the Father in heaven through Jesus, his son, through his son who died for me and lived righteously for me and was raised from the dead for me. That is my calling card. That's why I can sit here and there is no other explanation at all for why I'm here. Now that we can all cheerfully embrace, I hope, but you really feel how socially disruptive that becomes when I'm sitting here, graciously given a seat, and this other sinner shows up. And I instinctively, and please, beloved, you do this, so do I, it's human, and it's not even entirely wrong as far as it goes, I instinctively, when that other sinner shows up, I reach for my merit yardstick. And I start assessing this person, and I start assessing them morally. I start imagining who they vote for. I start imagining what's going on in their life, that they dress like that, and they talk like that, and I just kind of get this feel for, is this a good person or a not-so-good person? And the reality is, we also measure people with our merit yardstick. We kind of measure them materially because the truth is, whether we want to or not, instinctively we feel like the people who look like they're together must just be better people. And so we kind of judge the outfit and the shoes and the bling and all of that, and we try to figure out, like, what kind of a person are we dealing with here? And, and I, I instinctively do that when somebody walks into to the circle of the table. And very, very often, here's the blunt reality, I conclude this person is just not in my class. They're just not in my class. I don't want to sit next to them. I'm not even sure quite why they're here. And so the host at the table is rejoicing, and I'm uncomfortable. The Pharisees are grumbling. Why is Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners? That guy works for the regime. Does he not realize that? I think that man, that's a man wearing a woman's clothing. Could we not talk about that, Jesus, before you just sit down and start eating? I'm uncomfortable. And I want to talk today about how our social lines reflect, or do not reflect, the good news of God's kingdom and his heart at the heart of his kingdom. So I want to just begin by talking about God's heart towards sinners for a minute. Now, I should point out briefly just a little important technical note about this chapter, and that is that these three parables are actually one thing. They're not three different parables with three different lessons. They're one thing, and you'll notice as you read them that the first two parables kind of build toward the third, and they create certain expectations for that third parable, but then the third parable kind of throws us some curveballs. And so together, this shepherd and this woman and this father they are together showing us some things about how God relates to sinners, how he relates to the lost. Now, the first thing I'd like you to notice is God's desiring. God's desiring. 
Now this is not at all straightforward. And you can immediately see the genius of Jesus using three parables and not just one. Because this is anything but straightforward. I'd like you to ask this question about each of these parables. Is the thing that was lost in each parable desirable? There's no question that there's a desiring in the shepherd, the woman, and the father, but is the thing that has been lost actually desirable? Now, on the one hand, you could certainly say yes, and in fact, I think you could even make the case that that sense of the desirability, the value of the thing lost, actually increases over the three parables, right? Because, I mean, on one hand, you have a shepherd who's lost one one-hundredth of his flock, and that's a real loss. That's a that sheep is valuable. You've only got 100 sheep. That sheep, you know, you care. You want that sheep back. And the woman, I mean, more so because she's lost one out of 10 coins. A co- this, one of these coins was worth about a day's wages. You wonder if she's living alone. This coin matters enormously to her. Very desirable to get one-tenth of her, you know, her savings back. And how much do you suppose a father values and desires the recovery of one out of two sons. And so in a way you would say, oh, of course, the sense of desire only increases over the three parables, but it's not quite so simple. Because even as the parables, obviously, as you're reading through them, they intensify gradually our sense of desire to recover what has been lost, this third one really throws us a major curveball. Because while on one hand the sheep clearly did nothing wrong, It just got lost, and the coin clearly didn't do anything wrong. It's just an object. Can we say the same about this son? Now, I realize that we are living in times when young people disrespecting their parents is normal, sadly. But in this culture of this time, and I would even argue today, you can't get a much more personal and wounding insult than for a son to look at his father in the face and say to him, to be clear, the only value you have to me at all, Dad, is that one day I'm going to get some of your money. And if you really want to know how I feel about you, I don't even want to wait for your useless life to expire so I can get what's mine. Could you just drop dead and give me my inheritance? That's that's the idea. And you've got to believe there's backstory. <laughs> this is not the first time this guy treated his father this way. They are, it's been a rocky relationship. And that's his attitude towards his father. Drop dead. I want your money. That's all the value you have to me. Shockingly, really, the father doesn't talk back. He just proceeds to divide all of his property between his two sons. And without a solitary word of thanks, this son, relieved to be rid of his father, he gets on the road, he goes as far away from his father as he possibly can, and in that faraway place, as you read, he wastes pretty promptly everything he's gotten from his father like a fool. When he is done spending, and it, was, it would have been a sizable inheritance, we, we, we sense, when he's all done spending it all on drink and prostitutes, and whatever else, there is not a single dime of value for all that his father gave to him in that inheritance. Not a dime left. Nothing of value. He has squandered it entirely. Now, if we had some young man like this in the church, 
and I was talking to you as the dad. I wouldn't say this to you, but inside, I might sort of feel like kind of good riddance. And yet, the odd thing in this story is that everything about this father speaks unequivocally, without ambiguity, of the intensest desire that his son should return. It's possible that he just was looking up one day at something he was doing and saw his son down the road, but you get the impression that there's more going on, that he looked down that road a lot, hoping one day that he'd see his son. But here's what I want to ask you guys. Is that really God's heart toward rebellious, ungrateful sinners? I got to tell you, I wrestled with that this week. Can I give you guys some things just to meditate on? As you think about God's heart towards bad sinners, do you realize that the reason Jesus tells you to love your enemies is because your Father in heaven does? Have you thought about that? You're given that shocking command, love people who hate you because that's how your Father in heaven is. Have you ever noticed that Luke's first recorded words of Jesus on the cross, the cross, beloved, the worst crime ever committed, they killed the Son of God. They killed the world's Messiah. They killed a perfectly righteous man. His first recorded words on the cross are these, Father, forgive them. When God, in response to Moses' request up on Mount Sinai, now to be clear what's going on down below is they've just tried to turn God, the creator of heaven and earth, into an image like an ox, an ox made out of metal. That's how they think about God. They've tried to shrink him down and dishonor him that much. And Moses, in praying for them, says, God, I'd like to see your glory. And God says, I'll show you my glory. And he shows Moses his glory by announcing his name. And this is the opening, these are the opening words. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Make of it what you will. I weary sometimes of hearing people explain this stuff out of the Bible. God says to the prophet Ezekiel, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Our brother Ben brought forth the word from Acts 17 where Paul is preaching to pagans at the Areopagus, and it's very interesting. He concludes that sermon by saying God commands all people everywhere to repent. Is it, is, God, is it God's will that people repent and turn and live and find salvation in him? Well, he commands them all to repent. Make of that what you will. A murderer of Christians, a blasphemer of the name of Jesus writes these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save the righteous. No, to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. That's your God. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Pastor Ben, 
you're going way over one guardrail here because the scripture also says many other things. It talks about the wrath of God, and it says more than that, Ben. It says that God could change every sinner's heart, and he does not. It says more than that. It says that God could have predestined in his eternal counsels before there was a world. He could have predestined all sinners to come to salvation, and he did not. So what do you do about that? How do you square that with what you're saying? I would say this. What you're saying is true. God does change hearts. God does elect some to everlasting life. But beloved, please hear me. The purpose of God's revealing those secret things that only he does, and he does it mysteriously and secretly in his own way, he does turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh to receive him. He does. He did choose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. All of that is true, but the reason why God reveals to us those secret things is for this purpose. It is to assure you who believe in Jesus that even your faith in him is his gift. Amen? And that his love for you reaches back into eternity before there even was time. So that you who have believed in Jesus, having walked through the door of Jesus into the household of God, may look back and see over the door, you are the elect of God, holy and beloved, chosen before the foundation of the world. And it grounds you and it secures you to know that I am in the arms of love that stretches from eternity to eternity. That is the purpose of those things. It is not the purpose of God revealing those secret things to obscure and cloud his stated will towards sinners, which is, and I quote, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That's the gospel. And if you cloud that gospel and that intent of God, come to me, be saved. That is my stated will because you're digging around in the secret things of God. You have perverted those doctrines. And this becomes even clearer as we see something else, not merely God's desiring, but is seeking. Because the shepherd seeks, the woman seeks. God does not just state his desire for the recovery of sinners. He acts on that desire. The picture of the shepherd searching in the wilderness. And I love this picture. When he finds a sheep, he carries them home. You realize, you ever carry a sheep? I've told you before, my sister has sheep. If they told me to literally go out and just like carry that thing around the pen for five minutes, I'd be like, thanks, no. I could hardly get up underneath that thing. He carries the sheep home. There's cost, there's a burden. And the woman, the picture of a woman furiously sweeping her house, digging in every corner, relentless in the search that's that's God's that's God you know Jesus later in the house of Zacchaeus will describe himself this way the son of man came to seek and to save the lost and you know it harks back to Ezekiel where God is angry with the shepherds of Israel because they will not do this and he says thus says the Lord God behold I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a, on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them 
into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. That is the seeking heart of God. He comes for us because we cannot and we will not come to him. Now what is curious is the absence of seeking in the third parable. Do you notice that? And we'll return to that briefly in a moment. But first, notice a third and glorious window on God's heart towards sinners, his desiring, his seeking. Thirdly, and in my mind, the most hard to sort of figure out, God's rejoicing. God's rejoicing. Jesus says, I tell you, the shepherd and the woman have got nothing on the joy of heaven before the angels of God. I want to ask you guys something. How do you imagine the joy in heaven, the joy before the angels of God when a sinner repents? Well, the third parable here suggests that if you were able to see it, it might actually offend your sense of decorum you might actually find it unseemly. Because what we see in this father as he responds to the recovery of his son is undignified joy. No self-respecting father in the first century would ever have gone running down the road toward his son like this. With his robe flapping, tears streaming down his face, and he grabs his kid, and he throws his arms around his neck, and he hugs him, and he kisses him. This son who publicly shamed him. Everybody knows the father's shame. Publicly humiliated him. Basically stole his inheritance, and he's just kissing him and holding him. I'm so glad you're home. You think back to Jacob, weeping when he holds Joseph after decades apart. That's undignified. He's just so glad. Doesn't care who knows, who sees. He's home. He's back. I had a very bizarre experience at a wedding once. I, I, was, back, I was backstage. We were getting ready to, I was getting ready to walk out with the, 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 the groom, and the groom's parents were, were with him. And my back was to them. Before we went out, all of a sudden, the mother just lost it and she was just holding her son and kissing him and just trying to tell him how glad just how much she loved him and how how glad she was that God had brought them to this day and she was just pouring out her heart and just like weeping and trying not to ruin her makeup and I was just standing there like holding my microphone just glad my back was to them because to be honest the whole thing it embarrassed me because I felt like I was not worthy to behold it it was so raw so undignified so unpretentious, just a mother's heart. I was embarrassed to witness it. And the outpouring of gifts to this kid, I mean, how do you explain this? He's already spent everything. And yet here he is, and he gets the best ring, and the robe, and the shoes, and the party, and the fattened calf. He only killed that, like, at the rarest of joyful occasions. And the father just starts lavishing more stuff on this kid. And there's music, and there's dancing. They didn't even have amplification. You can hear it all the way out in the field. I had another wedding. You guys ever see a football player, when they score a touchdown, they kind of do this, yeah, thing? You ever see that? I, I was at a wedding once, 
And the groom did that coming down the aisle after the wedding. It's like, yeah! And he was like, and that's kind of how I picture this dad. Like, yeah, my son's home and there, there's music. and It's just undignified. And that is the picture God gives of his heart when a sinner repents. Now, to whom are these parables addressed? Who's Jesus talking to? Who's grumbling? So you've seen a little of the father's heart, I hope, but just very briefly, I'd like you to notice the elder brother's heart. Because he's angry. The father's just losing it with joy, and the, the, the older brother's angry. He will not go in. It reminds you of chapter 14, where Jesus talks about God spreading a feast, and people won't come. And when the father lays aside his dignity once again to go beg his older son to come in, not something a dignified father should have to do, this older brother shoves his merit yardstick in the father's face. And you can feel with him to a point. And he says, I've slaved for you. Never a day I wasn't doing my job, doing my duty. If any son deserves a party, I am that son. Not a, not, and look, father, no party. Never. Now, when this despicable son of yours who's wasted your property on prostitutes, comes home. Behold, the party. He's just angry. Let's spare no expense for the wastrel. And you know, by the strict justice of heaven, he's not entirely wrong. But how far is his heart from the kingdom of God? And it explains why there's no seeking in the third parable because the father has no son to send to bring his brother home. I think Tim Keller nails this in his book, The Prodigal God. As teachers of the Torah, the Pharisees know the entire history of Israel is a history of grace, of God's covenanting love to those who have not one shred of merit at all. And the one speaking these parables to them, before them stands the true elder brother. And he is here to seek and to save his younger brothers and sisters, to seek and save the lost. It is this one who is on his way to a cross, not for any sins of his own, but for the sins of the lost. He shows the heart of the Father, infinitely offended, but sparing no cost to bring the lost home. And the words of the father in the parable hang in the air at the end. He says at the party, my son was dead and he's alive. And to the older brother, and his words just hang in the air, your brother was dead and he's alive. Your brother This was an incredibly hard sermon for me to prepare because our context is so different from the context in which Jesus spoke this. Because our culture now is not dominated by religious, moralistic Pharisees. The world you and I live in is dominated by irreligious, 
flagrantly immoral Pharisees. The great sin in 2022 North America is to call anything a sin. You will be denied a seat at our societal table because you believe that there is any standard of righteousness at all. Very different world. And this is what I see happening in a lot of Christians in this world. Watching all that go on in the world 24-7 begins after a while for many Christians to create a sense of disgust. A sense of being besieged by sin. Being overrun and marginalized and even oppressed by just so much sin. And it can make us want to retreat into little ghettos, little enclaves of God's kingdom and just be so glad that those people are out there, not in here. Now what's interesting, that way of thinking creates issues for other people at the kingdom table. Because there are other people at the kingdom table who don't really appreciate your attitude towards those people out there. In fact, I was one of those people. Or I have a heart for those people. And in fact, you know what, brother, sister, you, sitting at this table with me, you sound kind of like a religious Pharisee. The way you talk about those people out there. And I'm sitting here, and I'm listening to you talk about those people out there, and guess what I'm feeling? I'm starting to feel kind of superior to you. Because I'm better than Pharisees. I kind of wish there were some other table where I could sit where I didn't have to sit with people like you who don't seem to like grace. This is all going on at Jesus' table. And I thought about this and I thought about my own heart. You know, some of us beloved saints, and I'll let the Spirit, the Holy Spirit do whatever you need done in your heart. I can't tell you what it is, but some of us need our Father's heart toward the unrighteous. I wonder sometimes for some of us, has our just awareness of sin robbed us of compassion as we pray for the lost? Real compassion. Has all this awareness of sin, and it's real, has it made us defensive? Has it made us even suspicious when God brings certain kinds of sinners among us? Are we primed by the news feeds and everything else that's in our ears? Are we primed to pull back from unrighteousness rather than reaching forth with just humble, confident grace? As we walk, this really, really troubled me to think about. As we walk among sinners in the various circles in which God has called us, do we ever see lost sons? Lost brothers, people who share God's image no less than you, who are no more unworthy of grace than you, who need Jesus just like you. And you just ache that they would come home. And as these sinners come and walk among us, are we able to extend belonging to them even as we pray fervently for repenting and believing for them? Some of us need the Father's heart for the unrighteous. Some of us need the Father's heart for the self-righteous. 
It is interesting that Jesus made a Pharisee of the Pharisees a prince among his apostles, sent to the unwashed Gentiles. We should pray for that, that God will take Pharisees and make them apostles. And sometimes, you know, an elder brother can teach us a thing or two about how to love and serve the Father well because they've just been doing it for so long. And some of us need the Father's heart for the self-righteous. The Father wanted that older brother at the feast as much as the younger brother. All of us need to spend a lot more time celebrating our baptisms. Baptism is that great yardstick of grace that reminds us every single one of y'all had to be washed. And thanks be to God, we have been washed by the blood of our elder brother. And the rest I'll save for the book.